0: My name is Brad and I'm the lead pastor here at Hillside Church and I want to thank you for listening to one of our messages from Hillside Church. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of scripture is still speaking today. So if it's me speaking or if it's someone else, we pray that the message you are about to hear would allow you to know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power. Enjoy the message. This morning for our sermon time, we are going to be in John chapter, I have John chapter 8 written in my notes, but that's entirely wrong. John chapter 18, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 18. If, if, if you're new to our church or if you, if you haven't been around much over the summer, we are on our seventh week of a series looking at the fruit of the Spirit and using the fruit of the Spirit as a roadmap to discover what spiritual growth and maturity looks like for the body of Christ. What does it mean for us to grow up in Christ? That, that there's so many things that we can point to, and there's so many markers and indicators that we'd like to use, but what does it mean for us to actually grow? That, that Sometimes it's, well, uh, do you know how many books I've read this year? Or do you know how many words I can say in Hebrew? Or do you know how much money I've tithed? Or do you know all of the. But, but ultimately, when we boil down, what does it mean to grow up in the Lord? I believe that, that the fruit of the Spirit give us the roadmap, map. And if you remember, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, he writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now this week, as we're approaching the end of our, of our look at this, as summer's drawing to a close, we're going we're gonna to speak on this one more Sunday next Sunday. But this Sunday, we're going to go a little bit out of order. And today, we're going to look at gentleness. Um, next week, we're going to bring together, and we're going to, on one Sunday, look at both faithfulness and self-control, because I think there's a compelling connection between those two as we talk about what it means for us to, to perhaps do the things we don't, or perhaps not to do the things that we want to do. And so next week we're going to be looking at those two, but this week we're going to be looking at a gentleness. Now, many of us, if we're honest, we might think: really, Brad, do you know what happens to people who we describe as gentle? They get walked over. They get stepped on. They get spit out. They get laughed at. They're, they're the brunt of the jokes that people will talk about wishy washy Christians because they're not, they're, they're, they're gentle. And right now we need to be a people who stand up and fight and be strong, not gentle. I, I don't want any part of that. I'll, I'll, I'll do faithfulness and I'll try to be patient and loving, but gentleness? Being gentleness seems like a mistake. That doesn't seem like something we, we should be. We really struggle sometimes when we hear a word like gentleness. There, there are some words that are used inside of our faith that in Scripture we'll to, we're told are good, but in the world around us, sometimes it, it's, it's hard to see. We don't like the thought of being gentle out in the world. The world is a ruthless, dark place, and we're told to turn the other cheek. The world is harsh. And and we're called to be gentle. Sounds like a prescription for disaster. Maybe at home with your family. If you're a parent with your kids, if you're married with your spouse, we could could be gentle and good, but but when I'm at work, it's a cutthroat place. When I'm at work, I, I gotta be on. I can't be gentle. You know what happens to people who are gentle? They end up in the mailroom. They end up getting fired. They they, they don't get ahead because they're, they're being too nice. And when you look up the word gentleness, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's, it's no wonder it can stir up some of these negative vibes for us. We read things like kindly, amiable, mild, a gentle wind, easily handled or managed, to, to mollify, calm, pacify. And if you actually look up the word in the English language that's used here, it looks like that. And it's pronounced taste And it's translated kind of the same way. Mildness, or, or it's the same word that we translate out meekness. Now Jesus does make an incredible promise in the Beatitudes if we're willing to be meek. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But if we're to be honest, most people don't want that description in their lives. We hear words like mild, soft, or delicate. It gives, can give us a sense of being submissive and overly passive. Maybe those words are the words that we like for the soap we use. We want that to be mild. Or, or our lotion. We want, we want that to, to be soft and to make our skin delicate. But we don't necessarily want us to be described like that. You know, somebody says, Oh, Brad, he's so soft. It doesn't usually mean that in a good way. But when we look at these nine character traits, these virtues that God wants us to live by, these these ways of growing up in his faith, gentleness is one of them. So it's something that God specifically chose, and so it's something that has to be important to him. And so it must be important to us. So, so how do we be gentle? What does gentleness mean and what does it look like? And I think that what we'll see is, is that even if we, when we look at the definition of gentleness, we don't necessarily get this full picture. But I think that as we look at this story in, in John chapter 18, we're going to get a bit of an understanding that there's something bigger and more profound taking place here. So if you're with me, you can turn to John chapter 18. What's taking place in John chapter 18 is Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where we're going to pick up the story is is, he's just moments before he's about to be betrayed by one of his followers, his disciples, his friend. He's about to be betrayed by Judas. And in, in a couple of hours, this betrayal is ultimately going to lead to all the way to his death. And Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying. And we see Jesus essentially having almost what we would describe as, as a nervous breakdown. Says so that he falls down to the ground. He falls on his face. He's weeping, and he's crying, and he's weak. And actually, he prays. And it's, we can remember this for, for in a couple minutes, because Jesus is going to reference this. But Jesus will say, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He knows everything he's about to to face. It it says that he's he's so stressed out that he begins to sweat blood. And that's a real medical condition that that has to do with stress and external pressure forces on the body. The weight is so much for him to carry. And he's asked his friends and his disciples, would you pray with me tonight? We're going to need to be in prayer tonight. And they keep falling asleep. So Jesus is, is trying to pray and trying to have his friends pray. And he's, he's playing sort of, sort of babysitter for them. Guys, wake up. We really need, to, you really need to be praying. I really need to be praying. And as Jesus is praying, he looks up and through the trees, he can see lights in the garden. And he can see these lights as they're getting closer. It's the lights of, of torches torches from roman soldiers from jewish religious leaders this group of people that don't really like each other seemingly have come together for one common purpose and as they get closer the light illuminates the faces and you can see that they're being led jesus can see that this group of people they're being led by his disciple by judas this man that Jesus chose, this, this man that Jesus has been living life with for several years, for the last three years, he, this, this group of soldiers and religious leaders making their way through the garden with torches and to, with, with evil intentions, they're being led by Judas. This group of people has, has come to capture Jesus. They've come to take him and ultimately take his life. And so what does Jesus do in this moment? Jesus knows what's happening. He's, he's prayed, God, if, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way than what's about to happen. He knows what's about to happen. So what does he do? Does he run? Does he hide? Does he try and disguise himself? No. The verses tell us that Jesus steps right up to them. Verse 4 of John chapter 18. Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, happened to him, went out and asked them. He sought them out. He didn't wait for them to come to him. It says He went out and found this group and he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, maybe it was a little bit dark out. Maybe they wanted to ensure they had the right guy. But who are you looking for, Jesus asks them. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Have you seen him? And Jesus replies to them, I am he, Jesus said. And and Judas the traitor was, was standing with them. Now, if you're reading in your Bible along with me, and, and depending on your, your version, you, you, or you may see that the phrase, I am, that Jesus says, when he says, I am he, it may have a different capitalization, or, or it may be italicized. Different translations kind of handle this a little differently, but it may be capitalized, or it may be in italics, or it may be nothing, <laughs> but some are. But it's important that we, we recognize this, because we can read a phrase like this, and really, it doesn't seem on the surface to have any significance. It's the right answer to the question. It's the way I would answer the question. If somebody came to church and said, Who's the pastor around here? I would say, I am. Without any particular grand significance, it would just be the right answer to the question I am. And these words wouldn't carry any, any extra significance other than that I would be identifying myself. That, that if I answered the question, I am, people hopefully wouldn't say, blasphemer, heretic. Just No, it, it's me. I, I am. But the italics and the capitalization, and along with what comes next, show us that something bigger and more profound is happening in this moment than Jesus simply saying, yeah, that, that's me. But the phrase that Jesus uses here is what's called a transliteration, and it's, it's for the word God in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, God is speaking with Moses, and God is asking Moses to go speak to Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let God's people go. Now, now Moses is currently, at this point in his life, he's living out in the desert because that same Pharaoh has banished him from, from Egypt. So Moses is rightfully, he's pretty afraid he, he's pretty uncertain. He's pretty baffled by this, this whole idea. And so Moses raises a series of objections over Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. But one of the things that Moses questions God about is he says, okay, but God, what, what, if, what if they ask me who sent me? What am I, what am I supposed to say to them? What if, what, if, what if I go and speak to the Israelites and say, God has sent me to lead you out. And they say, get out of here. Who are you? Who sent you? Where do you think you're you're getting this authority from? Essentially saying, God, what name should I give them for you? And in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, God gives Moses this answer. He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So this is the name that God gives himself, I am. And the name of God was so precious and so sacred for for the Jewish people that they didn't throw around this specific phrasing that Jesus uses here. They were were very careful not to use this kind of language because it was a special phrase reserved for God. And so we can read that as Jesus is not simply just declaring, hey, you're looking at him. Where is Jesus? Right here. You're, you're looking at him. It's me. The guy whose name you just said, that, that's me. But, but there's so much more than that. See, this is Jesus confronting what is going on right now. This is Jesus declaring that what they are here to charge him with, they're right. This is Jesus saying, I am God. They're here because Jesus keeps saying he's God. We've got to put an end to this. So, when Jesus steps up to them and says, I am He, this is Jesus' way of saying, Hey, you're here because I keep saying I'm God? Well, guess what? I'm God. And in this moment, we see another layer as well to the fact that there's more than just a question being answered here. There's there's more than just implied language going on here. We get our, our first picture of what I believe gentleness means. We see as Jesus speaks these words, there's actually like a physical moment that these people experience in what Jesus says. On the other side of Jesus declaring that he's God, the scripture says this in verse 6. I missed writing it. It says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus speaks and says, I am he, it says that the, the people there to arrest him, they fell back And and they they drew back and they fell to the ground. When Jesus says, I am he, they have this physical, spiritual, emotional response all at the same time. They they fell backwards onto the ground. It's, It's this moment where that same voice that spoke the universe into creation. And that same voice with that same power speaks again here. And we get just the tiniest little window into the power of the voice of Jesus. As Jesus speaks, and all these men, soldiers, priests, people with authority, the people who came to arrest Jesus, Jesus speaks. And with the power that comes from being God incarnate, all these men are knocked backwards towards the ground. It's just a flash of the power. That Jesus has, that he, he could wield as God. Now, i had said before that the guys who were with Jesus, they were having trouble staying awake, but not anymore. Now, now they're awake. Their, their attention's been got. The mob has come, and they're there. And, and we see that one of Jesus's disciples, he's got an idea. He's going to prove himself. See, just a couple of earlier, a couple hours earlier, before they were in the garden, Jesus and his disciples, they were sharing dinner together. And Jesus begins to unpack for them, begins to tell them what's going to take place over the next little while. And one of the things that he begins to tell them is that, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans... I'm going to be beaten and tortured. And then I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going to be raised back to life again in three days. But the disciples, the people who are hearing him, they're fixated on the idea that that he's about to be handed over and tortured and beaten and killed. And, And one of his disciples, Peter, stands up and essentially says, over my dead body. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Jesus, if I have to die alongside with you, I will do everything I can to prevent this from happening. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, this night's going to go a little differently for you. Before tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three, three times. That not only are you not going to die for me, it's actually going to go the complete opposite way of that. But Peter's like, no way, Jesus, I got you. I'm here for you. I'm here with you. We are going to do this. And so here's Peter's chance. Peter is, sees this moment coming. He sees the soldiers and, and the priests coming to get Jesus. He sees Jesus standing opposite them. And Je- Peter says, this is it. I've got it. This is my moment. This is the moment I'm going to go down in history. I am going to do something. And he's apparently packing a sword. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was was Malchus. But in this moment, Peter has done it. He said I was going to deny him. Here we go. Told you, Jesus. Jesus... Or this doesn't go the way Peter expects. Verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now remember earlier, Jesus had said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But now Jesus is saying, "This, this is the cup that I have. Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you carrying a sword? And you know that Peter missed because no one aims for the ear. It, it, I'm going to get his ear. That'll show him. No, Peter is a fisherman. He's not a soldier. He's not out here running around with swords because he's good at it. He's trying to show himself and he, he stands up for his friend Jesus saying, Aha! But Jesus says, What are you doing, man? This is what has to happen. And Jesus actually undoes everything that Peter is trying to do. In the book of Luke, we read this in verse 51. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Peter's trying and Jesus is undoing all of his efforts. Now, why is Jesus so against ...what Peter is trying to do here. Peter is just trying to do... ...what he said he was going to do. He was fighting for... ...he was trying to protect his friend. But even more than that... ...he was trying to protect who Peter knew... ...was the Messiah. See, Peter had made this declaration earlier. Jesus said, "Who, who am I? And Peter said, you are the Messiah... ...the son of the living God. And Jesus said... The Holy Spirit has shown you this, Peter. And so he's trying to protect the Messiah. But why is this so upsetting for Jesus? Because Jesus has stepped into this. He was ready for what was about to happen. And he says, I'm going to drink this cup that the Father has for me. There's one other, one other account of this story that, that I want to highlight for you. And it takes place actually from the book of Matthew. See, each of the Gospels gives us different insights and different viewpoints on the stories that take place in the life of Jesus. And Matthew has a detail in this comment, the, the detail of a comment that Jesus makes to Peter after he cuts off the man's ear. And it looks like this. In Matthew, it says this. Matthew chapter 26. Put your sword back in its place, he says to to Peter. Jesus said to him, "For, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, Peter, if I was looking for a fight... I could have a much better army than some fishermen who can't aim right. He says, if I was looking for a fight, I could have an army. So let's do some quick Bible math to understand the army that Jesus says is at his disposal. We we need to make one assumption to begin this. And that when Jesus says legion, he would have been using the the term for a Roman legion. Because that would have been what people would have understood. But if we we begin there, one legion equals about 6,000 soldiers. So when Jesus says, I could have 12 legions, he's saying 12 groups of 6,000 soldiers. So that would be 72,000 angels. That's a lot of angels, but, but what does it mean? Little, little babies in diapers with little harps or, or little, little bows and arrows. Is that, that doesn't seem all that intimidating. Well, to get a picture of what it looks like, we can go back to the book of, uh, of Isaiah. And we're told that in the book of Isaiah, in one night... One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. So one angel is equivalent to 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And he didn't, wasn't defeated, so he could have done more. But let's just start, we'll just use that number. So 12 legions, 72,000 angels. That would mean... 320 million soldiers, approximately. Even if you bake into that, that, well, technology's advanced a little bit since then. When Jesus says, Peter, if I wanted an army, I could have an army, Jesus doesn't just mean he could have had some people come and fight for him. Jesus says, if I wanted an army, I could have sure and swift and decisive victory in the blink of an eye. In a moment, this could be over. Peter, if what I wanted was to pick a fight with these guys, there wouldn't even be a fight. It would be over in a second. And I wanted to highlight this this story for you. And a couple of the things that happen here. What does this have to do with gentleness? Gentleness. That's where we started, and it seems like we've traveled a long long way from that. But but what Jesus says to Peter here, and what we understand about the voice of Jesus speaking and knocking people back, this shows us what gentleness really looks like. Because here's what you need to know about gentleness. Gentleness is directly connected to power. If you are powerful... Then you can be gentle. If you're strong, then you can withhold your power. You can portion your power in a way that allows you to be gentle. If you're not powerful, you're not strong. And if you're not gentle, you, you, you don't have the strength to be powerful, then, then you're weak. My son Theo loves to wrestle. He loves to roughhouse. He loves to jump on me. He loves to, to knock me around and to beat me around and, and all of this. And when he was little, when he was little, it was cute. It was fun. It didn't hurt. Now, it, didn't, it, it wasn't that it didn't hurt because he was being gentle. It was because he was so little, he didn't have the power to hurt me. And do you know how I know that it wasn't because he was showing restraint? How I know that it 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 wasn't just simply that Theo was being gentle with me? Because now he does have the strength and he does have the power to make it hurt. And he does. He likes to hurt dad. He thinks it's hilarious to hurt dad. He thinks it's really funny that his elbows are so pointy. He thinks it's really funny that he's like 65 pounds and can jump on me and it makes dad go, oh. He think, he, it wasn't that he was being gentle, he couldn't have not been gentle because he was little. But now he's big and he has a choice now. He can choose to be gentle or not. And he's got a very good track record of choosing not. But only powerful people can be gentle. In fact, the the more powerful you are, the more gentle you can be. The stronger you are, the more gentle you can be. And that's what we see here. When we understand what's taking place In this story, we see a picture of gentleness. We we see the incredible strength and power and authority and majesty and the Godhood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In a word, he knocks down people. A voice that still carries the power of the creation of the universe. In a moment, he could call down heaven's armies and obliterate all those around him. But instead of using all of that power that Jesus has at his disposal, we see that Jesus says, I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to to step into this. I have the power and the authority to do this differently, but I'm not going to use it. We see when he speaks to Judas, when they say, "Who? who are you looking for? We see it when Jesus speaks to Judas, his betrayer, And Jesus calls him friend. And not in a sarcastic way. Not in a snotty. He says friend. isn't, Isn't this something we want to be like? To be like Jesus. When life goes sideways... When life doesn't go the way that we want it to go, when people have hurt us, when people have done things to to hurt us and anger us and to even do their best to make life go wrong for us, when we have the moment to exercise power and authority over someone else, someone who really deserves it and needs to see your power and strength and you have the opportunity to take things into your own hands, we can... Be like Jesus, and instead, surrender our strength. Surrender our power. Instead, be gentle. I I think about it through the lens of of being a dad. Even with everything I said about Theo, um, I have three wonderful kids. And sometimes on a stressful day, I can be very quick to snap and I can be really harsh sometimes if, if I'm not careful. And it's not their fault. Maybe they did do something this big. But because of a thousand factors in my life, it becomes something this big. That they didn't do something that has deserved the response that they're getting from me. But because of everything going on in my life the fact that you didn't put your dish away, you're now grounded for a month. But there's this verse in Ephesians where where Paul says, don't be harsh. Don't provoke your kids. You know, I have the authority to ground them for a month. I can do it right now. Heidi, you're grounded for a month. I have the authority to do that. There's nobody to question it. I can do that. I have the authority. Oh, and you're grounded for two months. I can, I can Theo, no, um, but we can do that. As a father, as a parent, I have the authority. I have the power. I have everything needed to throw around my parental weight and <laughs> crack some heads. <laughs> but in Ephesians, it will say, don't, don't do that. It will say, don't be harsh. Don't provoke your kids. Raise them up. Don't provoke them. To, don't push them down. Raise them up. It doesn't say don't discipline them, but, but it's saying you have all the power, you have all the authority as a parent, but you have to wield that in a way that's gentle. But if you, if you crush your kids just because you can, that's not being a good parent. This is what gentleness looks like. When you're powerful... And you push people down. That's the opposite of what God wants. He he wants you to use your power through gentleness. Or wants to use use your power through gentleness. To raise people up. When we have the moment to take things into our own hands. And to do things our way. To use our strength. Our authority. To use our hands. But we trust God. God. That's what gentleness looks like. When we have an army capable of killing 13 billion people and a force of a couple hundred in front of us. But we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust God. That's gentleness. We, We need to be gentle. It's a fruit of the spirit. Because it's who God is with us. We worship a God who is gentle with us. Scripture will say he is slow to anger. Aren't you glad that he has so much grace for your life? That he doesn't overwhelm us with his power, but he raises us up like his kids. Being gentle is when we have all of this power to do something on our own. And we choose not to. Jesus had all kinds of power to do all kinds of things to those who would stand against him. But he chose none of it. In fact, he laid down all of his power. Any earthly power he had as a man, he laid it all down. And all of the heavenly power he had as God, he laid that down as well. All the way to death, to death on the cross. A death that was for you and a death that was for me, but a death that by all rights, he he didn't need to suffer. But because of his grace, mercy, love, and gentleness towards you and I, he chose to be gentle, to give up his power and, and do something for us that we could never do on our own. He gave up everything he had all the way to his life. Gentleness may seem counter to so much of what we think we need to be in life. But but Jesus modeled it for us. He modeled giving up power for the plan of the Father. Being gentle isn't just being weak. But it's knowing that my strength, my power, and my might that's not where I need to look. It's not by my might. It's not by my power. But it's by the Spirit of God that we need to live our lives. Being gentle is allowing for that exchange to be made. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we, we are invited into A relationship with you, a future with you, a life with you that's not up to us. That it's not up to me to to live and to manufacture and to be everything that you've called me to be by my own strength, by my own might. God, I thank you that I'm not called to fight my battles myself. Thank you that you've invited us to be gentle. To not use my strength, my might, and my power in order to inflict my will on the world. But God, I confess to you now that I've done that far too often. Far too often I have looked to what I can do, what I can be, what I can make, what I think should be done, and pushed hard to do it my own way. But God, I pray that you would... Stir in each one of us, stir in myself, stir in our hearts and our lives and our spirits, God, a desire for gentleness. A desire to lay down my might, lay down my strength, lay down my authority, lay down whatever it is that I see in myself, lay that all down, and to be able to say, It's yours, Jesus. I will drink the cup that you have given me, Father. Whatever that looks like in our lives, God, may we be able, may we be willing, may we be comfortable to trust you with our lives, with our todays, and with our tomorrows. May we not be afraid to trust you, but may we live trusting that what you say is good, what you have for us is good. That even in the moment, we may have to drink a cup that's painful and, and that's difficult, that we can say, I can stop this. But God, may we be able to live with a gentle heart and a gentle spirit that takes away our power and exchanges it for your plan. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If I can write a melody all of heaven's choir sings. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. HillsideAirdrie.ca is our website, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HillsideAirdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, hillsideairdry.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go. At best, it
1: all means nothing. With love it all means nothing I can dine with kings and queens My name go down in history But if I don't have love it means nothing So take the old and make me new if i don't have love it means nothing if i can't love my neighbor like i love myself if i won't move when my brother cries out for help Let's on me sound like a crashing cymbal. No, I don't want to be some empty noise. Down on my knees, Lord, I surrender. Jesus, help me to love with a love like yours. I don't wanna sound like a crashing symbol no. I want it to owe me something. I want to love my neighbor like I love myself. And I want to move when my brother cries out for help. Don't want to be too proud to forgive before the sun goes down in this life that i've been living what would it mean At best it will all mean something with love it all means something yeah. i hope it all means something